0: Well, if you are new or visiting with us this morning, I'll just speak directly to Hillary and Kate. If you're new or visiting with us this morning, uh, let me tell you about our church. There's three things that we believe as a church. And this is the, the, the movement that we see in Scripture. This is the biblical story. First of all, we believe this, that there is hope beyond our brokenness. So all of us have a story of being lost. And with Jesus, we have a story of being found. We don't stay... Um, in that pit. As Psalm 40 says, that the Lord heard my cry while I was stuck in that miry clay, and then he lifted me out of it. Amen? Amen. So the story that we have is being honest about where we are in our life, in our brokenness. And as we are, everyone around us starts seeing how God transforms us. And so that is the story of what it looks like to follow Jesus. There is hope beyond our brokenness. Second, we believe that we are called to trust in our risen Savior. So Jesus is alive and present. Amen? Yes. He's here this morning. Amen? Yes. And so as we trust Him, that means that we listen to Him, that we talk to Him, that we follow His directions, because um, how many of here believe that God is smarter than you are? How many of you here are not quite sure yet? (laughs) There's nobody willing to be honest. But our behavior reveals that, doesn't it? Where we're kind of iffy. And so the journey of getting to know Jesus is a journey of trusting him. And that is a process where we literally have an experiment. Does it work better if I trust Jesus with my finances, with my relationships, with my giving, with my resentments, with my sin with my past with my present with my future so we we experiment with him and as we do so what we find is that the living breathing God of the universe is here in our midst and he is faithful to us and he will never let us fail amen third what we believe is that then we're called warts and all right if you're a worry wart that means you're an anxious pimple that all of us worry warts, all of us ragtag, bob-tailed Christians, all of us people, all, all, all of us broken saints, dearly loved by God, are called right now to bring restoration to our community, so we don't wait. So if you know Brandy, then you know that she's an amazing woman, and she's not perfect, and yet she's decided to raise her hand and become the answer to someone's prayer this week. And all of Change for a Dollar is, is our blatant manipulation to get you to understand that you have a mission. That's all it is. And so what we give, we give our our, our little bread and our little fish, right? Our sack lunch, whatever that couple bucks that we have is. And then it's an experiment for you to see that you can make a difference right now in your family, In your neighborhood, in your school, in your business, everywhere, God wants to use you. And so God's going to use Brandy this week, and next week we're going to come back and we're all going to cry as Brandy tells the story about how somebody met Jesus through your generosity. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Okay. So the last, I don't know how long we've been in the, oh, we got to say this. Um, So each one of these truths... Hope beyond our brokenness, trust in our risen Savior, restoration Restoration for our community. Each one of those has a choice with it. Let's read this together, the choices that we make. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, Choosing choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. That's what we believe. We choose to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in the resurrection work. So we've been in the Gospel of John since Easter. We'll be in it through, uh, throughout the fall. It's so great. I love this. Uh, are we having fun yet in the Gospel of John? This is great? And so last week, um, we learned how Jesus is in, in church, right? He's at the temple in the fall, um, or actually at the very end of summer and it's the Festival of Tabernacles. And the Festival of Tabernacles is this week-long party in which the Israelites celebrate the fact that God rescued them from their exile. That with God, our wandering is over and we are home. Amen? Amen? That with God, we're no longer outsiders, but we've been made insiders. We who were lost are now found. Amen? So, this is what Israel learned of wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. They moved from slavery to freedom, from human doings to human beings. Right? So on the last day of the festival, there's this incredible moment, and if you were here last week, you remember this, but I'll catch you up if you weren't, um, where the chief priest, he's followed by the, uh, the elders, and they make this procession all throughout the city of Jerusalem. They go to the Pool of Siloam, they take this golden pitcher, they dip it full of water, they make their way back into the temple, and tens of thousands of people there are in the temple courts. And, and they're, what they're doing is they're recreating the scene um, when Moses struck the rock at Horeb, here's the rock of Horeb, right? He struck that, the rock split in half and the spring flowed forth from the rock. So they're recreating that moment. And so the chief priest has lifted this golden pitcher filled with water. And as he pours out the pitcher of water, the most, the weightiest truth of the exile is remembered, that with God, our sins are forgiven, that with God, His Spirit washes us clean. And so the water pours out of the pitcher onto the altar and all of the blood is washed off the altar. Isn't that beautiful? It's a spectacular moment and Jesus ruins it all. (laughs) Now, I'm just guessing. This is not in the text. This is not in the Greek. This This is just my... This is just my guess because Jesus is a master at timing, but what we read last week is this. On the last, and read with me, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, and I'm imagining that he's standing and saying in a loud voice as the priest is pouring out the water because that's the moment when everybody's quiet Before then, everybody is is saying out loud Psalm 28, right? Which we read last week. Bless the Lord who saves me. Bless the name of the Lord who comes to save. They're saying that out loud. And so the only quiet moment on the last day of the festival is when the chief priest is pouring out the water and Jesus stands up and let's say it out really loud together. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water. So last week I made the simple point of saying don't get lost in the metaphor. I know that we have the aha moment of connecting all of these stories and that's really cool. But the point is so simple. Is that Jesus is the living water that will satisfy our thirst. And so therefore spend time with Jesus. Rest in Him and what He's done for you. Pray. The inheritance that you have as a child of God is found when you spend time with Jesus. So don't leave that treasure. Enjoy Him. For He is your portion and your peace and your hope and the greatest source of your power and your purpose. Spend time with Jesus. So we are going to pick up right where we left up off last week and and go to verse thirty nine. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Now the guy who's writing this, which is the apostle John, um, who wrote the book of John. John is going to explain what Jesus means in verse thirty nine. So let's read that together. By this Jesus meant the Spirit whom those believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So. Okay, so John is explaining that the living water which has been poured out is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So the water which will be when we believe in Jesus, the water which is poured into us by God, that's the metaphor, is actually the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who will quench our thirst. Amen? Okay, so now let's Make the appropriate substitution. Go back a couple of verses and read what Jesus said to out loud to everybody, but with the explanation put in. Ready? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Read with me. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, a river of the Holy Spirit will flow out of them. Now, 15 years of being a pastor, I can tell you that I've learned one thing really clearly, and that's how to read Scripture. When you read Scripture, slow down. Put yourself in the story. Put yourself in the metaphor. Every time I read Scripture... Every time I touch my button, it goes... Every time I read Scripture, um, every time I read Scripture, what happens, or every time I read Scripture quickly, what happens is that Um, whatever God is saying to me in that scripture, it skips off my heart like a rock on water. Does that make sense? I can't absorb it. So I have to slow down and put myself in the story. So let's slow down and put ourselves in the story, in the metaphor. So what is Jesus saying here? He's teaching us some really profound truths. Look at verse 37. First of all, Jesus is saying, let anyone who is thirsty. Jesus is saying that all of us get thirsty in our spirit like we get thirsty for water in our body. Does that make sense? What do we get thirsty for in our spirit? We get thirsty for God. And so with a simple phrase, Jesus is helping us understand something quite profound about how you and I are made. This is not something that you can change your alter this is just what it means to be a human being i know that's exciting isn't it you're going to stay awake whether you like it or not today we're designed to thirst for god in our spirits now and and you all know this look we we've all had that we all have regularly the experience of wanting peace of wanting to feel safe of wanting to feel complete, of of not finding that sense of satisfaction, even after we've worked so hard to get what it is that we've been striving for. You ever had that experience? You finally get it, and you're like, that's it? It's like, oh... The promotion that we just got, the relationship we finally landed, the thrill of the adventure we're about to take or we just got back from, the dessert that we just ate, the drug or drink that we keep on taking, the account balance that we've wanted to have, that we finally have, it never satisfies us as much as we hope it would. Even worse, what we've discovered is that it's taken more and more of that thing to satisfy us. and now. Because it's taken more and more, we've put more time, more energy into the pursuit of that thing that's not satisfying, and it's costing us in the most important relationships that we have. If you can reluctantly relate with this experience, say amen. Amen. The thirst that we have as human beings only is satisfied by the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to stop doing that. Fine. The Holy, Spirit's in you. the Holy Spirit's in me. So Jesus is inviting us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. I will satisfy you. Trust me. Believe me. Talk to me. Listen to me. Obey me. Follow my directions. I have your best in mind. And the best part about it is as we follow Jesus, all the good things that we've been working hard to achieve, we'll actually get to enjoy them because I'm not asking chocolate to bear the weight of my soul. I'm not asking my wife to be my personal savior. I'm not asking my stuff to satisfy my soul. Now, as all of that stuff is a tool to be a blessing to everybody that is around me. And things are in their proper place. Does that make sense? Okay. So... Jesus is inviting us, come on, come come to me, all you or her weary. Now, read verse 38 with me again. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, a river of the Holy Spirit will flow out of them. So as we believe in Jesus, what happens? The Holy Spirit fills us, and then what does it do? It flows out of us. Now, here's the, here's the image that Jesus is having. So we're the cup, and God is going to pour into us the Holy Spirit, and then it's going to overflow out of us. And that's not something that you manage. That's not something that you prevent. That's not something that you make happen. That's what God does. And there's a deeper principle here, too, that Jesus is talking about. Um, One of the, let me pause here for a moment and just uh, zoom out and give you a little bit of cultural history of where we are in America. One of the worst victories that the enemy has won, I didn't even touch myself on that time, (laughs) one of the worst victories the enemy won in the American church in the latter half of the 20th century was to poison the idea of evangelism and mission. Uh, The good news uh, is the Greek word euangelios, like a eulogy, eu means good Logos word or you eu, angelos, you angalias, Angelos is angel, it's a messenger that brings something good the good news, the gospel. That's what an evangelical is, that's what evangelism is. It is simply to declare good news. And what is the good news? Jesus won, he loves you, right? Your sins are forgiven. It's news, it's not advice. You should do X, Y, and Z, Todd. It's not advice, it's news, right? It's something has happened outside of you that has radically changed your life. That's news. Somebody's receiving news right now about who won Wimbledon, and I'm not gonna tell you at Othellwin's request, okay? Evidently, I wrecked the World Cup for a lot of people last week, and I'm not gonna make that mistake again this week. My sermon example last week is how I wrecked two movies for people, and evidently I destroyed the World Cup for seven people who had it recorded hoping to find out who had won. So I think Pete Sampras won today, I I think that's Or maybe Andre Agassi, I'm not sure. Anyways, okay. So. so what has happened? Well, what we did in America is that we took this idea of proclaiming the good news and we turned it into a sales phone call. We turned it into a sales appointment. And so what you would do if you were evangelizing is you try to convince somebody to buy something or convince somebody to agree to something or to convince somebody to say a magic prayer that's not even in the Bible. And then all of a sudden, they would be saved. And then you could say, I've saved this person. I won this soul for Christ. And you would give them a pamphlet with four spiritual laws and a book with seven highly effective habits of something people. And then, and then they would be better, right? Okay? And, and what that did is that it poisoned and twisted the idea of evangelism into something that it's actually not. Same thing goes with mission. Mission um, is for spiritual ninjas Right, who are called to be sent away to some jungle or arid desert, and they're going to work with some indigenous, primitive people group. They're going to learn their language, translate the Bible, and save them all. And all of us breathe a big sigh of relief. Thank God, I'm not a missionary. Whew! Right, but that also meant that now we no longer have believed that we actually had a mission. That missionaries were other people out there, experts that we would fund because we felt grateful that we didn't have to do what they were doing. We didn't have to wear a white shirt and a black tie and show up and bother somebody on a Saturday, right? We didn't have to be that guy who was trying to convince somebody to do something, amen? Now, that means that these two words, evangelism and mission, are completely twisted by the enemy and and we've lost them. And what Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying as he stands in the courts of the temple? He's saying this, whether you like it or not, whatever source of life you're drinking is going to fill you up and pour out of you. Whether you like it or not, you are constantly evangelizing right now. Because you are always asking your friends to partake in the thing that you believe gives life. Drink this, taste this, experience this. Come do this with me. It gives you life. Whatever source of water you are drinking in, it fills you up and it spills out over your life. And you can't prevent it or manage it or help it. That's the way it works. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying this. Let me pour life into you. Spend time with me. I will satisfy your deepest thirst. I'll bring peace to your heart, healing for your wounds, a hope which will crumble your fears. The Holy Spirit who gives life to all things will flow out of you. You will be a source of life, of joy, of healing, of reconciliation to everyone around you. Now, the opposite is true as well. If I drink from the river of resenting all the people who have hurt me, what will flow out of me? If I'm keeping track of all of your wrongs, what's going to flow out of me all the time? If I drink from the river of hyperperformance, what will I demand of others? If I drink from the river of moral perfection, how will I treat myself when I fail? You picking up what I'm putting down? Whatever river you believe will give you life, it will fill you up and pour out of you, whether it's beautiful and good or dysfunctional or unhelpful. And so Jesus sits down, but everybody is staring at him because he's just wrecked the service for the second time in six months. Before, at Passover, do you remember what he did? Uh, Making a whip. Right? And he caused a stampede. So this is the second time that Jesus has wrecked a major holiday. Right? And everybody's like, oh, my gosh. Verse 40, read with me. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. That's a job description like Moses or Elijah, okay? 41, others said, he's the Messiah. That's another job description. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? I love this. How do they know he's from Galilee? The way he speaks. Y'all, I think maybe Jesus had a little twang. I know you don't like that, (laughs) but it is what it is. (laughs) 42. Does not that Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived, a.k.a. not some hick town, hillbilly place called Galilee? So this guy named the prophet, the prophet's job was to be like the commissioner, right? Like the commissioner. Remember remember the commissioner? He got the red phone. Right, it's, he's just got to pick it up. It's only got one button in the middle, and he just presses that button, and Batman is on the other line. That's the prophet's job. Presses the button. Hello, God. Yes. Mm? Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then he speaks for God. That's the prophet's job description. The Messiah's job description was a little bit different. Messiah's job description was to be the night shining armor, riding on the horse. And the Messiah was going to wipe away all the Romans because Israel was under Roman occupation. And the Messiah, through his victory and strength and military prowess, was going to um, bring about a brand new kingdom of autonomy and rule where Israel would be set up. But then all these people are going, dude, that guy's got a sudden accent. Like, there's no way. Like, I thought that... Messiah was supposed to be from Malibu. That's that cute little town just outside the big city. That's Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem's 5 miles outside the big city, right? Isn't Jesus supposed to be from Malibu? That's where all nice people come from, right? <laughs> so many of us like the crowd are totally confused about Jesus. We grew up in churches where this idea of evangelism or mission or 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 Perfection was perpetuated in the churches by the pastors, and we met Jesus. We fell in love with Him because He's amazing, and then all of a sudden we we get around Christians or pastors which demand that we de- drink from a different water source, and it poisons us, and we lose heart, and we leave the church. Can anybody relate? That's what I did when I was nineteen. I was done. I was talking with Kate's husband, Mike, who, who, Kate plays the violin, and Mike and I went to the same college. And, and when I showed up to Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, I didn't want to believe in Jesus at all. I was trying to be perfect at my fraternity at the University of Washington. It's pretty hard for a 19-year-old kid to be perfect at a fraternity. And so I just beat myself up all the time as I failed miserably at being morally perfect. Perfect. And then I tried to do what everybody taught me to do, which was to love your friends and like talk to them about Jesus. And every time I did that, my friend group shrank and I became more and more alone. And so it's like, I'm trying to do what's right and I'm absolutely miserable. And all of my hedonist friends are diving headlong in doing what is wrong and they're happy. What are you doing, God? Like, what is this? And so I said, forget it, Jesus. I'm done. And I stepped away, stepped away from church, stepped away from my faith. And for a moment, as I joined my friends in their hedonistic pursuits, I was really happy. I had a lot of fun. And then there we could be, I remember the moment. I remember the moment. It's like this hole opened up underneath me and swallowed me whole. And, and, and none of everything that I was doing was making me happy, and Jesus wasn't there anymore. It's like I was so thirsty, and I lived in a world where there was no water. I was utterly lost. So back to Jesus in the crowd. So many people have all these ideas about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, should do for them, and none of them agree. Verse 43, read this. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So there's a group of people like, stop ruining church, Jesus. And so they want to arrest Jesus for causing these problems. So they push through the crowd, but then they see Jesus and they're like, never mind, you're bigger than I thought, or I don't know, but they don't seize him, right? Jesus is about six feet tall. He's a big carpenter guy, right? Calloused hands, not like mine. Verse 45, finally, the temple guards, that's the police, right? Every big city has a police. There's a police force for the temple. When you get 100,000 people in one place, you need some security, okay? So the temple guards are there, and they went back to the chief priests, and the Pharisees, these are the people running Jerusalem, and the chief priests asked the cops, why didn't you bring him in? So the religious leaders are mad, They have a water source that all the people are drinking from and it's giving them power and money and they do not want that process disrupted. You picking up what I'm putting down? Look, if you want to get in trouble in a hurry, try and dislodge power and money from powerful people. They will wreck your life in a hurry. And so what do the cops say when the leaders grill them? Verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Cops at this time had seen religious rabbis come to Jerusalem once every three to five years, and they would claim, I'm the Messiah, I'm the prophet, and then they wouldn't be because the leaders would arrest them, and then either throw them in prison or kill them and go, see, he's not the prophet or Messiah. And so the cops had seen it all before. This is the first time in their history that, they've, that they're actually in awe of someone because it's the first time. Well, see, when you meet Jesus, he changes you. The religious leaders don't want to hear any of this. Verse 47, you mean he's deceived you also? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, no. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on him, on them. So what are the Pharisees saying? The religious leaders are so invested in their little system that keeps them in power and control that they're claiming that if anyone believes in Jesus, they must be nuts. They must be insane. They must be possessed. They must have something deeply wrong with them. Have you ever experienced that in our world today? Why is it that you can believe in anything but Jesus? It's like, go ahead, be a Muslim, be a, be a Hindu, be both at the same time, do witchcraft. We're we excited that you're doing all of it. Yeah, but don't, don't be Jesus. Don't, don't be a Jesus person. Isn't that amazing? So 1964, there's a New York World's Fair. It's the most incredible display of technological marvel in the history of the world. And UNICEF asks Walt Disney to create something for them celebrating children. And so Walt Disney creates 300 animatonic, moving, singing children. Don't anybody dare sing that song. <laughs> it has caused so much pain to all of us for so many years. And so, so Disney, Disney did something unique. He actually built this, this entire ride out of plywood. Um, in order for it to be shipped to New York. And, and he charged 95 cents for adults to go on the ride, which was like about 10 bucks at the time. And all the money would be donated to UNICEF. And UNICEF's goal at that time was to end um, poverty and uh, hunger with children uh, across the world. They still do that mission to, the, to this day. And so people were so excited to go on this ride. And so Disney then unpacked the whole thing after the World's Fair was done, shipped it back to California, and installed it in Disneyland. And then the year later, he did the same thing down in Florida at Disney. Well, in Disney World when that opened in in 73. So that's the story of this awful ride. (laughs) I went on this ride four years ago with my son. Now I'd been on this ride before as a kid. I thought it was really cool, but I hadn't seen it. I mean, it'd been like 25 years before going on this ride again, and it was fascinating. Is that as I was going through this torture chamber, um, <laughs> there was all of the different cultures and countries of the world and all of the major religions with their symbols, right? So the Moorish crescent moon and the Star of David and the Hindu, like literally a multi-armed singing animatronic. You know, um, you know, God of Vishnu or whatever for the Hindus, and, and and there was only one person missing: Jesus and his cross. No, there is there is no mention of Jesus in "It's a Small World." And 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 this is this is the point: is that there's so much confusion about Jesus. But the world is very clear that it does not want you to trust Him. And there's one pastor, one religious leader who's actually had a conversation with Jesus. He's a state senator and a megachurch pastor. His name is Nicodemus. Do you remember that? Chapter 3? And he says this. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? So, it's a brilliant political statement. Nicodemus is saying, wait, 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 I'm not really for Jesus, but before we condemn him, let's like find out what he believes. And, and they're going to slap down Nicodemus, but what they've, what, these, what these people who are running Jerusalem will do from this point on in the book of John is that now they will hunt Jesus down to try and kill him. And so, in order to silence Nicodemus, they do the worst thing possible that you can do to someone who has any kind of education or political power. They lump him in with all the hicks from Galilee. Are you from Galilee too? They replied. Look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So, they insult his intelligence as well. I love this passage. This is the end of our time together. I love this passage because of its simplicity. Jesus declares a profound truth about who we are as human beings. He says, You and I are going to be thirsty. So stop drinking from a water source that's going to kill you. Drink from me, and you'll be satisfied. Now, the good news says the gospel says this I'm more broken than I want to admit, and I'm more loved than I could ever dare to hope. So where is the gospel in this story? Well, it takes courage to admit it, but you and I, who are we in this story? We're the Pharisees. We're the crowd, confused, even angry at Jesus. That's me. Dare I say it? That's us. Why? Because when, wh- why is it that when God says, sweetheart, I'd like for you to drink from this wonderful water source. Right, what you're drinking from right now is polluted water. And how do we respond? We get angry, we get defensive, we lash out. Back off, God. I'm not dead yet. I'm fine. I can keep on drinking this. Everybody else is doing it. You know how hard I worked in order to buy this water? I don't care that it's a little bit polluted. Sort of like vanilla ice cream with a little bit of manure in it. It's still mostly vanilla. (laughs) What? Are we literally arguing with God as to why it is that we have deserve and that we should be able to drink water that has death in it? But that's what we do. That's what we do. And as Christians, we just we just think that everyone can't tell that we have our little secret water source. A little water bottle. You know the one I'm talking about? It's got Jesus written on the label, but you put that label on there, right? And it's got a little bit of pollution in it. And here's the thing, y'all. Remember what I said? You can't hide or manage what happens when what you drink. It comes out of you. You cannot hide or manage it. And guess what? Your breath stinks. (laughs) Your teeth are green. It's coming out. It's coming out of you. Whatever you drink in comes out of you. You can't hide it. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't leave you. He doesn't condemn you. He joins you. And what he does is he says, sweetheart, I'm going to take all of the death that this is bringing into your life and I'm going to bear it on my own shoulders so that it will not kill you. And I'm going to invite you to follow me to drink from a brand new river of life that will truly satisfy your soul. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. This is the miracle of our Jesus. We rebels who are fighting to drink polluted water are rescued by the God of the universe who dies in our place. Amen? Amen? So, what do you do this week? Spend time with Jesus. Your appetites will change. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you can taste what's in the water you have been drinking, and you'll become, it, it will repel you. Does that make sense? Yes. The, what we do, it, the way that you break an old habit of drinking that old water, whatever it is, is not to, to focus on not drinking it. The way that you displace a bad habit is that you start a new and better habit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So what you do is you spend more time with Jesus. You don't focus on necessarily stopping what you're, you shouldn't be doing. You spend more time with Jesus, and then you won't even think about doing that thing that's causing you to be sick. You picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah. Second, spend time with Jesus. Do you see the theme? the knot of lies about who he is and what he wants for you from you and for you will unravel the greatest part about being a christian is that like as we spend time with jesus he becomes more and more clear and all the lies about who he is become more and more clear and it's easier to set them aside now i don't ever bring i don't ever try and convince anybody to believe in jesus the people that know me say andy what is going on with you Like, you're more honest about your failures than ever before, but you're also nice now, too. (laughs) What the heck is going on? Like, is this electroshock therapy? Like, what did you do? And that's when I get to tell them about Jesus. The same thing's going to happen to you. Spend time with Jesus, and you will be changed. And people will ask you, would you please tell me about what's changed in your life? Because I want it to. Third, Ready, read it with me. (laughs) Spend time with Jesus. Do you see the theme? The shame that you feel about what's been done to you, about what you've done, will finally wash away. God wants to replace the old identity that you have as thrown away, worthless, forgotten, broken, and he wants to replace it with a brand new identity that you are God's beloved child whom he loves and will never leave. Spend time with Jesus this week. He is your portion, your inheritance, your hope. Lord Jesus, thank you for my friends. Bless and seal all the good news that has been sung and proclaimed into their heart this day. We pray against all the enemy's plans to rob, destroy, choke out what you've done here today, Lord Jesus. And as we move on from this place, Lord, I pray that you would guard us with your peace, with your encouragement, and that this week we would spend time with you we would seek you out, rest in your presence, pour out our hearts to you, and follow your direction. We love you, Lord. And all God's beloved saints said,